Are your wiper blades chattering, skipping, or squeaking? Don't let streaks or smearing on your windshield compromise your visibility. When it's time to replace your wiper blades, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and see our selection. Our professional parts people will even install your new wiper blades while you wait. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, home of the modern whitetail hunter. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Hey all, welcome to Wired to Hunt. I'm your guest host, Tony Peterson, and today we're talking with deer researcher Dr. John McRoberts about a radio-collared buck that walked nearly 200 miles. Welcome to Wired to Hunt, which is brought to you by First Light. I am your guest host, Tony Peterson. Mark is out of the office this week. He is down, I think he said, at a cosplay convention in Tuscaloosa. He said he was going to be an anime samurai or something. Anyway, I hope Mark's having fun down there. I've got the reins to Wired to Hunt today, and I've got a fascinating guest with me. His name is Dr. John McRoberts, and he's done all kinds of wildlife research in his life, some really cool international studies, but he's also led some studies here in the States, including a pretty comprehensive two-region study in Missouri that they're still parsing through all the data, but it's the one that came uh, that came out recently where... This buck that they had collared walked nearly 200 miles from his home range as a three and a half year old and kind of set the the deer world on fire a little bit because a lot of us think that deer, you know, stick to a core range. They they disperse when they're young bucks and then they they find a nice area they like and they hang out there. And this GPS study kind of uh, turned that around on its head and really has has opened up some possibilities that maybe that buck that you think is going to live on your farm forever He could just light out and take off. It also kind of explores the possibility that this was an anomalous one-off event. Uh, John has so much interesting information. It's always, it's always a pleasure to talk to wildlife researchers who are also passionate hunters. And he, he definitely uh, is that. I think you're going to absolutely love this episode. John, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Tony. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. So you're you're like a uh, a secret celebrity in the hunting industry right now because you you're you're one of the one of the folks behind this research study that's getting all this this crazy press in the in the whitetail space specifically on this buck who took a crazy journey that you guys tracked and we're going to get to that uh, a little later but let's let's talk a little bit about how you got into wildlife biology and you you've done some really cool research not just with whitetails but but other game animals as well Where'd that come from? 
Well, like a lot of biologists these days, I got interested in the field because I grew up hunting. I mean, from a young age, my dad had me in the duck blind with him, and then that transferred to other hunting opportunities growing up in Missouri, and we were a, a family farming, uh, had that background going for me, and so always access to a spot to hunt, and that interest in hunting blossomed into a undergraduate degree in fisheries and wildlife from the University of Missouri, and I was never a great student, and grads, grad school was never on my radar, but I was having a lot of fun studying wildlife and uh, helping with different research projects led me to some interesting travels, and it just kept kept snowballing. So you wanted to, you know, growing up with your background, hunting, hunting and fishing in Missouri, you knew you wanted to be around that, you know, and, and there's only so many career paths to take, right? You could be a conservation officer maybe, or you could, you can get into science. That's kind of, kind of it, right? Yeah. And one of the funny things was I didn't even connect the dots when I was high school and younger that you could do this as a career. And so I knew that there were folks working in the, in the field, but I didn't know how you got there. And so I started off as a, as a, biochemistry major in college and then figured out there was a fisheries and wildlife program and slowly started trickling over into that into that space and it was a fantastic life decision and and I've never looked back. Yeah and you and you ended up in a in a position where you get to ask a question. You so something in your experience makes you ask this big question that you that you get to design a study around or work with some people to design a study around. When you were growing up, was it, you know, were you looking at those green heads coming in or those deer walking through the field? Were you thinking, do you feel like you were thinking a little deeper about it than the average hunter? Were you like, why are those deer here? Why do they do this? Or I wouldn't say thinking deeper. All of us as hunters are trying to figure out what the next step is for, for those long beards, for those green heads, for whatever we're after. And so, yeah, there were a lot of questions from the deer stand and from the duck blind. And as you're walking the fields for pheasants, just trying to figure out why are these species doing what they're doing? Why are they in this location and not the other location? And that was to be, you know, to enjoy hunting a bit more, to understand what made these species make the decisions they made. And so I think that's something that all of us hunters share together. And I had the good fortune to turn that into a career. Yeah. You, you and I were just chatting before we started here about, you've got a little, little tiny baby at home. And I was telling you about my time with raising two babies at the same time. And I, I think one thing that kids remind you of, especially when they get to a certain age is they're, they're just curious. They're asking mm -hmm. questions all the time. And it's so it makes you think like how jaded sometimes we can get as adults or how we can kind of just like make up our mind that, you know, X, Y, and Z are this way. We don't have to think about them anymore. And hunting, fishing too, of course, but hunting is sort of a, a nice conduit to curiosity. Like it keeps you, you know, because you, you, you're never going to master it. And it mm -hmm. keeps you thinking because you see things out there that you, you just naturally have to question because it's something new or something different. I think that's one of the best things about it. I would agree entirely. And it's, you're you're right. You don't master it, but you can hopefully get a bit better the more you learn and the more you study. Yeah. Yeah. And if somebody tells you they've mastered it, they're <laughs> they're full of yeah. shit. Yeah. Feel free to run away. 
So you, you go to college, you, you have this moment where you say, you know, this is this is a career. Fisheries and wildlife research is something I could I could get into. Where, where do you go from there? Well, the the next step was gaining experience. And the you know, the average college student in this field would spend a few summers or a year following graduation doing what we'd call technician work. And there you're on a research project. And that is one of the funnest parts of this whole career path, because you're getting such a diverse exposure to wildlife research. I uh, did did tech work on black-footed ferrets in eastern Montana. I spent some time in South Africa, spent some time catching waterfowl. And then right before college, I had an interesting chance to go to western China and work with the Smithsonian doing panda research. And so spent six months in China, and then came back and started grad school at Texas Tech in their wildlife program. What did you do in South Africa? That was a variety of projects. I was helping grad students. And so I did everything from radio tracking leopards, which was, you know, maybe the the pinnacle, to doing vegetation surveys, doing soil surveys, spent a lot of time digging in the dirt to get soil profiles. And so Everything was related to natural resources, to wildlife, and I bounced around among grad students and had a ball. And that was really what solidified my my career path, was that semester in South Africa. Yeah, I, I'm going to speculate here that growing up as a young man in Missouri, you probably didn't see yourself uh, in South Africa studying leopards or in China studying pandas. No, I didn't. I did, didn't. Did you uh, did you ever have any close calls with leopards? No, I really didn't. I wish I had a good leopard story, but they were uh, they had VHF transmitters on them, and we weren't trying to see how close we could get to these leopards. We were trying to get uh, a point and triangulate and and plot a location on their map, but we didn't. Uh, we had very clear instructions from the professor in charge not to. Not to push it. Good call. Good, good <laughs> advice. Reasonable advice. Yeah, they. Uh, I, I got to go to Africa, South Africa, in like I think 2007, and where we were hunting, they said, you know, we got a pretty healthy leopard population. And when I went over there, I was like, I would love to see a leopard. And I was sitting in a uh, sort of a makeshift blind. It was like they kind of a test out spot first, so it was just uh, it wasn't like the big concrete ones they build that are you know almost impenetrable. Right. Right. And I was sitting there and I had all these kudu just go blowing out of there. And I was like, Oh, that that was so weird. I mean, they took off like knocking over trees and just crazy. And then I had a leopard call behind me and I was like, I don't want to see a leopard. (laughs) (laughs) When you hear that guttural, just, you know, it sounds like a saw going through wood, almost like a rough saw. I mean, it's just, that's, that is a animal that commands respect really quickly. Yeah. Yeah. Through their vocalizations, they just convey power. Yeah. Yeah. They're no joke. And you know, the, a lot of the natives that we were around over there, that was what they were most scared of. Well, they, uh, they deserve respect. No yeah. doubt about that. Yeah. We're, we're going to get to deer in a second. I got to ask you any, everybody looks at pandas like they're these, uh, sweet, lovable teddy bear type of things. Are they secretly kind of pricks or not? <laughs> I've, I've never called them a prick before, but they aren't the, uh, they aren't the cuddly animal that that they get made out to be. I mean, they're they uh, 
you got to watch yourself around them. And so where I was working was a breeding research facility looking at reproductive behavior of pandas because of the captive breeding interest in this species. And you didn't get too close to the bars on the cage. I mean, you didn't um, get in there and give them a big bear hug. They had stories of, of workers at this facility that had been hurt. And a panda yawns and you see those canine teeth and uh, it's it's not the cute cuddly animal that that is made out to be now i did get to play with some of the baby panda cubs and that was that was fun yeah i bet uh it's, it's so interesting so you so you kind of uh you go through this phase in in your research career where you're starting out and you kind of get to be a globe trotter go do mm-hmm. some really cool stuff what, what do you do when you end up back in the states well i when i got back to the states in, uh, and started grad school in, in Texas and was doing lesser prairie chicken research. And so lesser prairie chickens are getting a lot of press these days because of listing potential and some some conflict and some disagreement between different industries and conservation groups. And so got back here after China and started doing a research project to de- design a aerial survey technique to find lex lesser prairie chicken breeding areas from helicopters and so got to uh, spent two years flying at low altitudes in texas and new mexico developing the technique to find these birds and and get a better idea of what populations were like and it was the goal there i mean was the assumption you know that the, the populations were going down because of land use practices and stuff and you're trying to figure out what the what the a, a more accurate way to determine populations to follow them or what? Well, it, it was to get baseline information because everybody saw the writing on the wall that the populations had been declining for a long time, for decades and decades. And that had accompanied land use changes and there were other factors in play. But to start off with uh, with these conservation efforts, we needed to know where birds were, where birds were not, and how to survey their range. Mm-hmm. What what was going on with them that was knocking the population down? Um, it was uh, more feature. I mean, it was a variety of things. It was different grazing practices. It was different land use practices, putting up features on the landscape like, you know, telephone poles, for example, that provide perches for raptors and that would nail them. There were industries expanding in this area. I mean, oil and gas, ranching, um, Industries that I'm not saying aren't necessary to our our uh, survival, but competition for for habitat. And you know, any conservationist, any hunter, outdoor enthusiast knows that we don't have the prairies like we used to. We down there it was short grass or mis- mixed grass prairies, and like everywhere else, those habitats were becoming more fragmented. And prairie grouse, like prairie chickens or sharp tails or sage grouse they need big open spaces yeah and they, they don't do well with overhead cover no it, even the, no. the appearance of overhead cover right right yeah. and so that was an interesting project finished up that and then again was not going to go <laughs> was going to get out of school as quick as i could but i had a wonderful uh, advisor and decided to start a phd project started one looking at mule deer research and then had the opportunity to go to the Yucatan Peninsula and do some of the first oscillated turkey research. 
down in the jungles in Mexico. And so spent about four years down there catching oscillated turkeys, putting transmitters on them and tracking their movements, their survival and learning as much we could about that species. What, what, what was the mule deer research all about? Well, that was that was looking at uh, at habitat use in New Mexico. And I, I started on that, but was only there for about three or four months before this opportunity came up to to do the turkey research. So another student picked up the mule deers and I headed south of the border. So I didn't get too deep into that. Did you did you get to hunt the oscillated when you were down there at all? I did a number of times. <laughs> Right place at the right time. Uh, do you, so as a, you know, you're ensconced in academia in your research, even though, even though your, your chosen field is wildlife biology, which implies hunting and conservation. Do you, do you find any times where you kind of have to hide that? Like, oh, I'm doing, you know, oscillated research, but I'm also hunting these things. Or do you just, you know, wave it loud and proud? I, I, I don't hide it. Good. And I occasionally find folks who don't agree with it, but there's a real great story with oscillated turkeys specifically that ties in with hunting. And there's an area, and I'm going to name drop the area because I'm sure some of your your listeners have heard of Carlos Cana Cruz or Las Flores. They're two management areas in the state of Campeche, and they're they're a common place for hunters coming from the U.S. to go down and, and harvest an oscillated turkey. This area has, without question, the most dense population of oscillated turkeys in the world. Now, when I say the world, we only find them on the Yucatan in Mexico and the northern parts of Belize and Guatemala. But the reason why populations are so dense is because it's, it's more economically practical for the locals to conserve turkeys and not shoot them for the dinner pot each day and then bring Americans down who are paying three, four thousand dollars into this community and you know have a good hunt. Hunters come through, they win, they get their birds. You've got jobs for people cooking, for people driving, for guides. I mean a hunting guide down there is one of the most lucrative <laughs> business for these local Mayan people in that area. And so the reason why there are are so many birds is because there's that conservation and that value in place directly because of sport hunting. Yep. Yeah. It's a, there's just such a weird balance with, you know, I mean, you could call, nobody really needs to go hunt oscillated turkeys. It's like a cool trophy and kind of the, you know, the, the fifth subspecies in the, in the grand slam or the super slam, I guess, or whatever it would be for turkeys, but you can't, you know, like trophy hunting is, is sort of has a lot of negative connotations throughout Mm -hmm. the world. And, you know, that's what we get painted as all the time, but there's, you can't divorce those cottage industries and those economic benefits from it. Like that you can't, you can hate it all you want, but you can't take away the fact that some of those places that are really, really economically challenged, these, these little industries rise up around there and the, the conservation comes with it. And now all of a sudden it's pretty much win, 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 even though not everybody wants to acknowledge that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it it is the case. It's an interesting hunt. It's a lot different than hunting turkeys back in the U.S. And that's one of my favorite things to do is turkey hunt. But when you're out there and you've got the chance of seeing a jaguar walk by and you've got toucans up in the trees and you've got uh, howler monkeys howling, it's it's a really unique, interesting, well, interesting part of the world. And then when there's a hunt to go with it, 
Yeah. Is it, is anybody Except, making an oscillated decoy? Um, yeah, I've got one right here in my office. They don't work too well. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. I, I had one made up thinking that I could use it to help capture turkeys and uh, oscillated are as wary as, as I've ever seen. And I grew up hunting turkeys, Easterns in Missouri, public land and private land. Um, and that can be a wary bird when you get an old Tom, but oscillated, it's just takes it to the next level. And I think it's because there's so many predators down there in a oftentimes thick environment that they're just, they're neurotic. They're on all the time thinking that something's about to grab them. Is it, is it any part of that, uh, due to probably, I, I would just assume there probably has been a pretty good history of unregulated hunting of them as well. Uh, yes. And that is a, a, would be a major mortality source of that bird down there is the subsistence hunting. And, um, you know, it's a poor part of the, the country, Mexico specifically. And so it's hard to fault people. I mean, you can't fault them at all when they need to feed their families, but that is a major mortality source. We had radio marked birds with radios that would end up in town that would end up hung on a, you know, on a T post somewhere along a road. And so, uh, the subsistence hunters were definitely, definitely taking some birds. Uh, I, I know we're, I, I keep saying we're going to get into whitetails. I got to ask you something else. Yeah. <laughs> we, I swear to God, anybody who's listening, we're going to get there. So the, we, we have a little place on a lake in North central Minnesota and they're doing a study on the walleye movements right now. Cause they're the natural reproduction the the take is pretty high. The natural reproduction seems to be pretty low. And a lot of the walleyes seem to be reaching sexual maturity really small. Because, you know, there's not, you're not getting those, you know, 22, 24, 26 inch females that would kind of be driving the reproduction in a lot of bodies of water. And so they've, they, I don't know how many walleyes are a part of this. It seems like a lot of them, but they went up, fisheries went out and I'm assuming they electroshocked them and then they tagged a ton of them and put transmitters in them. And then they sunk some listening devices throughout the lake to, to follow the patterns and see if there's one dam on there where if they go through it, they can't get back up. And so they're like, are we, are we losing them down there? And I get personally frustrated because I know a lot of people fishing up there who are <laughs> not uh, calling in or, or, you know, turning in any of the data. They're just knifing those suckers and chucking the transmitters. Uh -huh. Like I, I, I'm only assuming here, but it seems like the compliance with, with, you know, this study from the general population is really low. Have you bumped into that in some of the stuff you've done? I mean, I know that's a different kind of thing. Yeah, and you get a little bit of everything, um, and we can talk about this as we move into deer, but as the technology improves, your capability to track wildlife species just keeps improving. And so when I was talking about the turkeys, we had a VHF transmitter. That's very high frequency. That's the one that beeps, and you hold out your antenna and try and home in or triang triangulate to find out where that animal is. When we uh, started with this deer project we're going to discuss, it's all GPS-based. And so um, it's harder for anybody not to comply because it's all satellite-based. And, and you know, you, uh, I get more worried about invading people's privacy than them taking a collar and not reporting it because if they throw it in the bed of their pickup truck, I still know where that collar is. 
yeah i guess you don't you don't think about that that aspect of it uh-huh. and so uh, it's it's imperative that that you know people call in duck bands that if they harvest a marked animal it's always helpful to know that and we should all be on the same team i mean this is this research isn't done for our own shits and giggles it's for yeah. to in, inform well, it, part of the part of the reason I asked that, or I, I wonder about that. So this this study where this buck took this crazy walk and crossed all these rivers and highways and interstates, the when you when you read the the research summary that you guys put out there, the paper, you know, it mentions you know this this could have serious implications for CWD management. And you know, I know as somebody who's written about CWD a million times, like I know how like man, there's two factions, right? There and some people don't want to hear it. And so I could see it. it there's kind of a, it, it, at least to some extent, some people just kind of seem to want to stick their heads in the sand and say, this is not an issue and I'm not going to worry about it. And so I could see something like this, where a study goes, Hey, this buck walked 200 miles, you know, in a way we've never seen before, or, you know, beat the previous record by a hundred miles. I could see people kind of being like, ah, I don't, you know, if this is going to lead to more restrictions around CWD, I don't want anything to do with this. I, you pull their funding, whatever. Uh, do, you, do you bump in anything like that? Yeah. And people will use whatever results you have. They'll spin them to uh, align with their, their personal values or personal objectives. Luckily, most wildlife biologists and the state agency we're working with through this research, the Missouri Department of Conservation, who have been uh, fantastic and very valuable collaborators, and and this whole research has been done hand in hand with them. But they get it that you manage for a population; you don't manage for an individual. And so, we saw this this amazing uh, dispersal. But we're not going to, or I wouldn't recommend that CWD regulations are changed because we saw this and documented it once. We can get into some more of the averages, and you know, I can check the figures, but about 80% of the deer don't move more than five miles. But then you've got some that go a little bit farther, and then you need to be conservative with your recommendations on how to manage CWD, but also balance opportunity and be pragmatic with, with those regulations as well. And so, yeah, some people say, you know, 200 miles, put a 200 mile buffer on anything. And well, <laughs> all of a sudden that covers Missouri and the surrounding States. Uh, yeah. I mean, the, the question behind that, right. Is, is this a, was this just a weird circumstantial thing that led to this buck during a hunting season um, and, and you know, the, the, the land breakdown as far as open ground and little, little patches of cover and the way those natural barriers or what we thought were natural barriers funneled in one way. And then the next, was this just sort of a one-off anomaly or as we do more of these GPS studies, is this going to, are we going to see that dispersal range open up a little bit because of this? Well, I think, I think your last two comments were both correct. One, it's an anomaly. I mean, we've got we've had hundreds of deer marked with these GPS collars where we can find them, and we're not seeing this. We had another uh, interesting dispersal, but after this one, the next maximum distance was about 47 miles, and so that's that's almost a third of what we saw with this deer. 
And maybe I should should just get in and describe this deer so we can all be on the same page with what we're talking yeah. about. Can we can we start with what the study was designed for first? Certainly. So there was a study uh, that we did, University of Missouri, University of Montana, and the Missouri Department of Conservation, where we wanted to look at white-tailed deer survival, population recruitment, habitat use, and resource selection. And the purpose of this study was to be able to manage deer more effectively. And so the survival and the recruitment data would be used for population models so that the deer biologists in the state could tweak different factors uh, that, that they can use to affect deer management and see what the outcome of those would be. There was interest among landowners and deer hunters to know more about localized management scales. And so that's what we were looking at with resource selection and with habitat use. And then with those movement questions, CWD has been detected in Missouri. And so knowing how deer move on the landscape would help the state agency design the best management practices to try and minimize CWD transmission. So it was a big study. We had two study areas, one in northwest Missouri and one in the central Ozarks in southern Missouri. And that was because basically we're two different states in Missouri. Northern, it's more agrarian, glaciated plains, ag country, and then you get down into the southern part of the state and it's it's the Ozarks. It's rocky soils, it's red oak dominated communities, some pine down there. And so two very different ecosystems. And so we needed two study areas. We captured deer using rocket nets and clover traps from January, February, and March for five years, and then would put GPS transmitters on the deer. And that could give us information about where they're moving, what their survival's like, habitat that they're using. And then in the spring, we captured fawns, the young neonate fawns, day-old fawns, and put expandable collars on them so that we could get an idea of fawn survival to get back at those questions about population recruitment. So this was, I mean, this was sort of a, a multifaceted study where you're looking at uh, mortality rates, you're looking at dispersal rates, and and kind of the overarching theme there is to give uh, the Missouri Department of Conservation better data to manage populations around. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, it, it, and this is this is one thing when I, I've I've dealt with uh, state game agencies a lot with interviews and just you know various things, and I've always felt like the the missing component to a lot of this stuff was the PR. And that you know, so when you when you talk about that, what you're really doing is is using science to give the Department of Conservation better tools to manage the deer in a better way, which is, you know, pretty easy to get behind, but it, there's always been this kind, not, I shouldn't say always in a lot of States, there's been this sort of perception that the state agencies are like, you know, we'll throw out a million deer number. <laughs> Cause it's, a, I, I actually had a big game coordinator in Minnesota tell me this one time we, we say a million deer because it sounds really good. <laughs> like, cause we, you know, we don't really know. I mean, they're not actually counting noses in the woods, right? And so there's kind of this perception out there with a lot of hunters where it's like the state game is, they have no idea how many deer are out there. And, and and to some extent over the years, that's probably been a little bit true because of the nature of, you know, an entire wildlife population in a state. That's a big thing to get a handle on. 
And so if you've fallen into that camp and said that, this is the kind of research that makes, you know, you, you don't get to an exact number, but you get better at these population modeling through this kind of research. It, you're exactly right. And it's, it's to be more informed. And, and so like technology, the methods to answer those questions on population size or growth keep getting better and better. And so we use these data that we're collecting, put in a statistical model. I mean, this isn't me as a biologist designing this tool. These are high-end statisticians who work with the biologists. And so you have biology in play, you have real field data, you have statisticians, and everybody brings their strengths to the table to develop this tool to manage deer. And you get better estimates out on what population sizes are or growth rates are, but you also get measures of confidence around those estimates. And so instead of just saying, okay, a million sounds like a nice, pretty round number, you might have this very odd number, very specific number, and then a measure of confidence around that number. So you know, you know, how strong to place your bet. Yeah. And it, I, I, the, the idea behind the two separate, you know, study areas is, mm -hmm. I think that's super important as well. You know, anybody who's been to Northwestern Missouri versus, you know, the Ozarks knows it's the same thing here in Minnesota. If you're in, you know, up by the boundary waters versus the Southwest corner of the state, you might as well be in different States. There's, they're so vastly different. So when you're talking about predation and fawn mortality rates and things like that, they're going to vary. I would assume vary so much from those two different areas. It, it is, it is the case and you can't extrapolate one to another. And so to really have a complete study, you need to have those two questions. I mean, it, you gave the Minnesota example, deer in so many states could could follow the same example, and so we needed both of those studies, and it's a it's a testament to the conservation department. This research is expensive. I mean, getting the collars out there, it's a lot of of hands on deck to make this work. It's a lot of um, of resources of a, a variety of types, and so to have one study is a big a big step with with the size of the project we were working. To have these two it's, it's more than double. <laughs> yeah. And this, this was a, this was a five-year study. Five-year study. Okay. Mm -hmm. And this buck, the, the wanderer, uh, the, you captured him, it was rocket net, right? Correct. Yep. We captured him in January of 2017 in Northwest Missouri using a rocket net one evening. And how old was he then? Do you think? About two and a half. Okay. And we could say that with confidence, just with uh, you know, going beyond two and a half for an adult is, you know, there's some question, but still we can feel like we can get pretty close, but this one would have been a two and a half year old adult buck. When, when did he go on his excursion? He started moving in early November of that year. And Missouri's, Missouri has a very long bow season, as you probably know, September 15th to January 15th but then a rather concentrated firearm season, 10, 11 days in mid-November. And he started moving about a week before that season began. And the next 22 days, he was on the move. And so previous to the, you know, it, it, we'll get into the rut movement versus the pressure, mm -hmm. the hunting pressure movement. But previous to that, he had stayed pretty tight, right? That's correct. 
What yep. what was his home range before that? Uh, it was, you know, it was nothing out of the ordinary. Uh, um, the area where he was captured, it was a couple sections of very good deer habitat. It was ag ground. There was plenty of timber. There was a stream moving through. And so it was where you would want to be as a deer. It was hunted. It was not pressured. Uh, in fact, uh, two biologists owned the property where we happened to capture this deer. And so they knew management. And up until he started moving, well, from the time we caught him and collared him with the GPS collar, yeah. until the time he began this, this long distance movement, he was a very normal adult buck. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. As a hunter in this role, do you, do you just look at that buck and go, he had no reason to leave? Knowing knowing where he, he spent most of his time? I, as a... As a hunter and as a biologist, I'd say that. I mean, there, there, it wasn't like it was a uh, density-dependent question where there were too many deer. It wasn't like there was too much hunting pressure. He was in a good spot. Mm -hmm. When he when he starts moving, how how often are you seeing the, these you know GPS readings? Is it are you are you seeing them every day? Or are you did you, did this happen? You check back a couple after a couple of weeks and go, holy cow. Uh, it was, well, 
it was neither. <laughs> we had so many deer that it uh, it's not practical for me to check on each deer each day, something like that. And so we have hundreds of deer. Locations during the hunting season were coming in every 90 minutes. So it's just a huge amount of data that would come in. And so the story of this one was I got an email that kind of filtered through a, a handful of folks said, do we have a deer in a collared deer in Monroe County? And I said, no, uh, that's way off of our study area. And I was, have been surprised at the number of questions I get like that. Somebody will catch a fawn and put a dog collar on it or something stupid like that. And, you know, do you have a dog collar deer down here? Well, no. And then I get a picture and it's, you know, whatever on this deer, which too bad for the deer. I'd encourage people not to do that. But anyway, so I got this picture and it was a real grainy trail cam photo. And I thought, man, that looks like one of our collars. And then I think, okay, it's somebody playing a joke on me because this wouldn't be the first time within the community that that sort of stuff has gone on. So I didn't, there wasn't a real good way with how these data were structured for me to figure out if this was one of our deer, other than looking at this game cam picture, I could see that it was an adult. And so I got our list of adult deer one morning when I couldn't sleep at about two in the morning and started going through deer by deer by deer, looking at locations. And I don't know, on deer you know, 15, I open up these points and they all display on Google Earth and thought, holy smoke. And I see this line going across northern Missouri, knew exactly where we captured it. And then lo and behold, it was where this photo had, had come from. So we would have figured out once we started running all the analyses. Mm -hmm. But how this one transpired was a bit unusual and was a bit of a shock when I drew up all these locations for the first time. So when you when you get that email with that grainy photo and you look at it and you go, man, that could be one of our callers. Like what what percentage are you buying into? Maybe this is one of our deer. Are you are you at like three percent or twenty percent? <laughs> I it'd be hard to peg a percent. I didn't. I thought something was up. Okay. I thought something was fishy, and you know, it's hard to trust what comes in on a trail camera. I mean, we get a lot of mountain lion photos from around the country that end up in, you know, who knows where. Um, and so people just claiming, oh yeah, here's a photo from the back 40. So I, I wasn't quite sure what was up, but it looked enough like our collar that I was definitely curious. And then lo and behold, it was our deer that had, had moved across the better part of North Missouri. Yeah. And at that point he was still alive. Correct. Yeah. What do, what do you do then? Uh, just share wait. the news. Oh, okay. <laughs> share the news with, with the study collaborators and say, Hey, look at this. There was nothing that we needed to do. The deer obviously didn't do anything wrong. I was initially most surprised that he was still alive after making this movement during the firearm season, when we have hundreds of thousands of deer hunters in Missouri out there, this was a nice deer. Uh, it was, a, a you know, a, deer that many a hunter would have taken without question. Yeah. This, so, this buck at that point's three and a half, right? Yeah. Yeah. And he's, he's walking a couple hundred miles through a state during a gun season that's open with like, you know, half a million hunters out there 
Right. And there's seven of them that would give him a pass. <laughs> if that. Yeah. And so what, you, you see this and you go, this is, this is real. This buck did okay. this. You, and you start to, I'm, I'm guessing you kind of start to reverse engineer his, his route and take a look at these, you know, these things that we kind of thought they're not, he's not going to cross or he's not going to do this. And he, he broke a lot of rules, didn't he? Well, he just, he covered a lot of ground. And so the data that we had for this deer was a GPS point every five hours for most of the year. And then 10 days before the gun season started, the firearm season, I upped that sampling frequency to every 90 minutes so I could see how the hunting pressure might affect deer. I did that for all deer, which was about the time he started moving. Now, those weren't related. This was all just something done laptop to satellite to collar, and it wouldn't affect the deer any, the the change of sampling frequency. And so having that resolution is really pretty good to know every hour and a half, here's where he is. And this was big ag country, and seeing how he moved across some of these open ag fields was very interesting. Seeing how some of the major uh, barriers, like Interstate 35 going north-south, that he had to work along that, seeing you know the river crossings, and then he'd hang, find some good place to hang up during the day, typically timber area, wasn't moving a lot during the day, and then night would fall and he'd be back, uh, back moving. Yeah. And it, I mean, it's, I think a, a lot of hunters would look at that and go, yeah, it, you know, it, it makes sense that he, it, a buck during the rut in a heavily pressured state when the firearm season is open, is going to kind of hole up in the day in whatever, you know, his, his chosen cover. And then at night he's going to cover a ton of ground and get his thing done and then hole up again. But this buck, and, and this is kind of seems like what this buck did, but he did it you know, eight miles apart <laughs> every day for days. And it's not like he was not coming across does at this time. If he was looking for a breeding opportunity uh, with the ground he covered, he would have found does. And so uh, that's him dispersing to find breeding opportunities doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. He was in good habitat. He wandered through very good habitat. And so what motivated this 185 mile dispersal is still the big question. What do you think it was? Uh, <laughs> I was afraid you're going to ask that. No, <laughs> I've had a lot of time to think about this. I think this was an individual deer that was just marching to his own beat and a deer hunter would like a better answer. I'd like a better answer as a biologist, but you think of the things, conventional wisdom that would drive a deer to disperse. You know, there's age related factors where, um, you know, new deer are coming into the population. The young, the yearlings, the juvenile deer get pushed out by, by, uh, you know, mom or whatever social pressures are there. That wasn't the case here habitat he was in excellent habitat and he really went through good habitat this whole area i mean this is a place that does well by deer not overcrowded not undercrowded i mean it was just in good good deer habitat this whole way and i know this country well and so i think this was a 
an anomaly of a deer that just started moving and maybe got to this new area as the breeding season was winding down and there was not the, uh, you know, some innate pressure that was driving him that maybe he didn't even realize. It's, it's a good question. And all of us involved with the study are looking for or interested in an answer, but we might never know what drove this particular deer to do what he did. He may have known that it was time to breed, but didn't connect the dots on what that meant. And maybe that's one out of 10,000 that this happens to. It's, it's really interesting that the explanation might just be that he's wired to be a pioneer and not a settler. <laughs> and and he yeah. really found his legs at three and a half years old. It do, do you think, so I, I do a lot of work in the dog space, the working dog and sporting dog space. And there's a new, uh, a new kind of trainer out there. I say like a younger trainer out there and I'm generalizing here, but the focus is, is way more on assessing your dog as an individual, you know, mm-hmm. not as a Labrador retriever or not as a GSP or what, you know, you can factor that in. Of course, that stuff's going to filter in, but really looking at like, how, how's the best way to train this individual dog of mine through, you know, taking into account its drive and temperament and the time I have and all of that stuff. And you start to realize how individualized dogs are. And we, we kind of know this because we've co-evolved with them for 20,000 years. But do you think that there's a chance the more research you do like this on deer, especially if you start, you know, mixing in uh, bucks that are reaching more mature age, which are probably like typically a little bit underrepresented in a lot of these studies, uh, you'll see just these individual tendencies of, of more deer kind of break out. Or do you have enough? history with research to go, "Eh, I don't think that's going to happen. No, I think we'll see it more. I mean, I think this is a rarity or we'd be more familiar with it already. But a while back in our conversation, you asked if this was an anomaly or if we might see this more. I think we will see it more because of the technology. And so the traditional way to monitor deer for research like this would be with that very high frequency collar that beeps. And you have to be so close to hear it. And so what happens when we have a major dispersal? I never would have looked for this deer where it was. And so with the VHF collar, we biologists are great at coming up with excuses on why things don't work. You know, radio failure, hit by a car, poached, whatever the case, we can't hear the beep anymore. And the farther it goes from its known area, the more surveys you would have to do as the biologist to figure out where this deer moved. Well, now with GPS technology, uh, we get locations delivered to us via satellite that we pull up on Google Earth or whatever platform you're using, and we can see these long-distance movements. We can see movements where deer go a ways and then come back, where with VHF technology, you just would have thought, well, I, I didn't find that deer today, and then it came back, and you start tracking it again, and you had no idea that it had this this movement where it went 10 miles and then came back. So not many folks are using VHF anymore. Everybody's gone the satellite route. And with the migration work out west, with deer research in the Midwest, I had an oscillated turkey that I put a GPS transmitter on in the Yucatan. And right before she started to nest, she went 12 miles straight into the jungle nested and then came back to exactly where I caught her within a hundred yards of where I caught her. 
So had I not had that GPS technology, I never would have seen that movement. And so I think we'll start seeing more of these interesting long distance movements just because we have the capability to to track now. Yeah. And we should we should kind of clarify this, too, because I probably I probably keep conflating these two. There's dispersal and there's excursions. And, you know, when you talk about dispersal for various reasons, you know, mom kicking the, the youngster out or whatever because of inbreeding, and, you know, there, there's bucks that are maybe a year and a half old ending up, you know, three miles away and into what will be his home range mm-hmm. and, you know, and vice versa bucks coming back into that. And then there's these excursions we see. And that, there was that buck, I think it was in Pennsylvania, they did that study where that buck made a excursion. He lived on public land in a real tight area and er, early in his life made an excursion way, you know, 12 miles away or something. And then he went and died there. And they were kind of like, well, what, what the hell happened here where this, this just felt like an area he knew about somehow, but you know, only built it into his life, like basically twice. And so there's, there's those two different things. Do you think you'll see like maybe like a clearer picture now of those excursions as well? I mean, I, I think you'd have to with this, right? We'll see anything that, that, uh, is, is movement. And so you can adjust these collars to take a point every, you know, every 15 minutes if you want to. And so depending on the research questions you're asking, you'll see how animals move on the landscape. You'll see when they go, when they stop. And, and you know, as with everything technological, it keeps getting more refined, more capabilities, lighter weight, better battery life. And so the the questions that we will be able to ask as biologists will keep getting more and more refined and informative. As a deer hunter, does this secretly give you hope that at any moment a buck could just show up from six <laughs> counties away and you could kill him? It, it, it does. It does. But <laughs> what's more, this project, I, I've always been a deer hunter, but after five years of doing nothing but deer, after spending hours upon hours upon hours, catching deer, handling deer, traveling for deer. I've taken a break from deer hunting for <laughs> for just a, a year or two to regather. Haven't taken a break from hunting, but I've uh, I've hit a little bit of, of deer fatigue on waiting for deer to appear. Well, you're, you're out in Montana, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can take a yeah, break from a, deer in Montana. <laughs> took a Took a new position at the University of Montana, and so based out of Missoula these days. Yeah, if you if you live in I don't know Pennsylvania or some of these states, you don't get a break from deer. You take oh, a break from I, deer, you're taking a break from big game hunting, just about. Right, and I know I said that, and and listeners are going to be thinking this guy's crazy because one of the neat parts about this job and this research was being able to spend so much time with so many avid, passionate deer hunters. And I learned a lot from these folks and new things to think about. And, and so, um, I will not claim to be in that, in that rank, but the people who are man, more power to them. So this, this study, you know, obviously everything that the the thing that gets the most attention is this buck that walked 185 miles out of, out of his home range. Was there anything else in there? Cause this was, this was comprehensive. It was five years and two locations and a, a lot of, a lot of deer collared. Was there anything else like a, is there like a one B, uh, you know, secondary kind of finding that you saw or something that happened where you're like, man, that was really cool, but it's getting overshadowed by this, this wanderer. No, but there will be. And so, uh, we, this data set was hundreds of individuals, thousands of individuals really 
millions of data points. This was a huge undertaking, and we're still in the in the stages of analyzing these data. And so this particular individual, this was a, um, a very comprehensive analysis, but it was pretty straightforward because you're reporting on, on one individual. Over the next couple of years, we're going to have more and more information coming out, and I think I think we've just scratched the surface on the interesting findings that will result from this project. Yeah. So this, this buck and getting kind of clued into this, this, uh, anomaly of a dispersal is almost like a distraction or a little bit of a mission creep (laughs) on the overall project. You know, this, this will probably have the most press press and most exposure from anything we do now from a management standpoint, this will not be the most important, but it'll probably make them best deer camp conversation. Yeah. Does that, so let me ask you this, like personally, does that drive you nuts that guys like me focus on just this part and then there's so much more to the work you're doing? Not at all. Okay. I mean, I, whatever folks uh, find interesting, I'm just glad that they're interested in the work that we're doing. I mean, the, the most frustrating thing is the research that gets done that really doesn't mean much. And it's done for the sake of publishing a paper or for doing research. And so that's that's where I get frustrated. We don't have that with this project. And that's the great thing. The work that we're doing will be used for management. It will be uh, available to landowners, to deer hunters, to wildlife enthusiasts of, of any kind to use what we find that might affect their land management or their conservation goals or their deer hunting or whatever the case will be. So uh, any of it that gains exposure, gains interest, can help people is is fantastic. Is there, this might be a little bit of a weird question, but there's, you know, there's kind of like politics involved in everything, every career, you know, especially when you're doing, you know, depending where you're getting funding and working with the general public or something that's, you know, directly affects the general public. Is this, do you look at this kind of, and you kind of just said this, but as sort of a weird uh, just like a nice win to get where it got people interested and it could, you could use it in the future, at least as like a public goodwill thing. Like somebody find you know, like the general hunting population finds this super interesting. It might make it easier to, you know, come up with some other research projects in the future and get support for it through, you know, the department of conservation or something like that, because of just like one little, this is like, this is like a weird little lottery ticket for you. I hope so. I mean, best case scenario very best case scenario is some high schooler reads this paper, finds it interesting, and then picks a path to be a wildlife biologist. And so if this gets us any goodwill, this one deer that that is getting a lot of national press these days, even international press, our, our adult buck from Missouri has uh, hit some international news outlets. Whatever gets people more interested in wildlife conservation, wildlife research um, is is excellent. And I'll take that however I can get it. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. It's a win. Uh, exactly. what, what's next then, man? So you, you mentioned you got some whitetail burnout and so are <laughs> you, are you switching gears here and, and studying something else or do you have something you're like, is there, is there a whitetail related question you as a researcher, you're just sitting there and it's kind of rattling around the back of your head. You're like, man, I want to address that. Is it, is there anything like that? Not at the moment. I mean, with this work, we've got we've got the survival questions we're still asking. We've got the recruitment questions. We got the habitat use. What I'm most excited about right now with these data, and and we were just scratching the surface on on what we can use this data set for, 
is to see this final product of, of the population model. And I think that's going to be real slick. And I think it's going to make everybody who cares about deer in Missouri make their lives better because we're going to be able to manage that much better when we take all this, this ecological data, land cover data, put the statistics to it, and we're going to have a product that will be very powerful for for deer management in Missouri. So that's what I'm most most excited about now. And I had I had a little whitetail burnout. I'm not burnt out on on the question and answer side of it and doing these analyses. I uh, I just found myself I, I took one doe this year with my muzzleloader because I needed stuff for the freezer. But in the November portion of the of the hunting season, it uh, it felt like I was back in the rocket net blind saying, all right, where, where's the deer? And I, I spent so many hours with that. I was ready to get my GSP and go, go find quail instead. Oh, believe me, man, you don't have, you don't have to explain <laughs> yourself. I've hunted deer for my job for a long time and I really like fishing smallies and I really like following my dog around for roosters. Like exactly. I, there, there's a time every deer season I hit where I cannot wait to get out of the trees and go <laughs> do something else. Well, my dad duck hunts hard and he says his favorite day is opening day and his second favorite day is the last day of the season. And he doesn't miss too many days between. Yeah. It's a, it's a weird, it's a weird place to get into. I think, I think this is what a lot of, you know, this, this podcast is so, so focused on whitetails, but hunting in general, it's weird to get into that space where, you know, like, this is the thing I just, I, I have to go do this. Like I, I live for this. I have to go do it. But you also come to terms with the fact that there's points where you're really going to hate it and, <laughs> and really, but, it, but you also get to that spot where you're like, I know, even though I want to just smash that alarm and not get up today, I know it's going to be worth it every time I do. Yeah. So you have these just up and down moments. Uh-huh. Oh, and you're exactly right. And then you get out there and, and the sun, sun starts coming up and you're glad you got up. Do you, do you see, so you, you, you mentioned that, you know, this is obviously a Missouri study. And it's going to help the the game managers in Missouri at the Department of Conservation balance that checkbook much better from year to year as far as figuring out, you know, how many deer should be, how many deer should be out there and how many can we allow to be taken and, you know, how many are going to end up in coyote bellies and all that stuff. Do you have, uh, you know, are there, are there state game agencies? Is, is Does Kansas reach out to you and say, hey, can we like, can we talk to you about this or do other states or is there kind of like individual fiefdoms where you don't really work together? No, it's a very, a very collaborative field and it's a small world. I mean, there's just not that many of us out there. And so you go to the meetings and you see the same faces and you bounce ideas and there's no, you know, there's no territoriality. There's no, uh, there's really no competition because everybody's working toward the same goal and helping each other out. And so, I mean, it goes so far as to share an equipment. If somebody gets shorthanded and you need to go help someplace over here or teach a new technique. I mean, with the the learning curve on some of this stuff is very steep. And so I've been I've spoken with people around the country about techniques for capturing deer or how to fit collars correctly or what to watch out for with you know programming GPS collars or whatever the case may be. And so it's a very, very uh, collaborative community. And and that's deer, that's turkeys, that's quail, that's roosters, that's all of this stuff because we're all, we're really all on the same team. Yeah. I suppose with the, you know, you mentioned the rocket netting and some of the, some of the other ways you capture deer for studies. I suppose you have to be super careful 
about how that's presented so the general mm-hmm. public can digest it and be okay with it. Yeah, you do. And we take steps. I mean, the last thing we want is some, you know, a capture related mortality because that's not why we're doing the work. That's not why we got into this field. And so, for example, the rocket nets, there have been many, many times that I can think of having deer at the capture site where I can't hit the button on the net to shoot the net because there's too many deer and we don't have enough handlers or the deer are too packed in close together and they're going to hurt each other and, or, you know, they're too close to the net or too close to the rockets or whatever. And so it's not deer show up and you, you shoot things, you know, it's an ethical shot. And so usually with the rocket nets, that's how we are capturing adult bucks. And oftentimes they travel alone. And so that makes it a bit easier, but it's, uh, you know, it's not just go out and take your first shot. You're waiting for things to be right so that that animal's safety is ensured. Is is there is there some like a similar kind of rush when you start doing that right away as you know, like when you start hunting and a, and a buck walks in and it does it oh, wear off? No, it doesn't wear off. It doesn't <laughs> wear off at all. No, but I uh, I can think of well, you know, all hunters know when your heart starts pounding and you're thinking, is this going to come through my shirt? I mean, it just so it feels like it almost shakes your whole body. I've had those times in the rocket net blind. And so, you know, it's just circumstances or it's a big buck coming out or whatever the case may be. But it is uh, it is definitely a, a thrill. Do you ever miss? I don't. <laughs> Some of your colleagues do. <laughs> Some of my employees have missed before. And that's always a, uh, you know, when you miss with a 40 by 60 foot net, <laughs> usually you're the one buying beers that night. Is I... You don't have any, like, you've never just, like, filmed that, have you? Uh, Somebody yeah, just whiffing? Yeah. Oh, whiffing? No, no. We don't do much filming just because yeah. there's enough other things going on. But we had one of the media folks with the conservation department come out. And, you know, I had to clarify this doesn't happen every time. And, you know, it's like stars aligned in a nice 10 point walked out about four 30 in the afternoon and it's snowing. And, you know, he was on the road with the footage he wanted to share with the public before the sun went down, which rarely happens. And so we've had a few, uh, a few lucky spots over the years. Yeah. I was just thinking with a, with somebody missing what, with a <laughs> net like that, what, what a wonderful representation of buck fever that would be. Yeah, it would. And there, you know, the, uh, it's happened. There's been some buck fever in the rocket net blind before, but it's a, it's a very effective tool to catch them. Yeah. That's, uh, that's awesome. So you, uh, what, what do you want to do? You know, you're a young fellow. You've done a lot of really, really cool stuff already. What's kind of like a dream study for you. It doesn't have to be white tails. Like what's, what's something out there that's just like, man, I would, that, that keeps me up at night. Well, I think more about oscillated turkeys. And just because there have been so few, uh, there's been next to no research on there, on the, uh, that species. And so I was one of the first, maybe the first, to put transmitters on wild birds. Other people had caught some birds that were in some protected areas, but it'd be like collar and elk and Yellowstone at one of the you know campgrounds. Doesn't really represent the wild bird. 
And that's such an interesting bird and an interesting area and interesting questions to be asked that that would be, if somebody gave me a million dollars to design a study, that'd be where I'd go. So is there, is there a level just of personal interest? Cause you think it's, they're cool and where they live is really, really neat, but also there's just sort of a, a gap in the, there's a, there's a void in the, in the, the knowledge about them out there. Both of those definitely. And then the other thing is you know, there's research like that that could really help people. And that's still used as a food source by, like I said, very poor people. And I don't see that changing and then there's that international hunting interest in the species, and there is a void, and so there's just a lot of reasons mm-hmm. that it's appealing. But yeah. it's a personal, personal one. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot going on there. There, there could be, you know, globally, there could be so many kind of parallel situations to that that that, that could benefit from this this particular that might not seem related at all. Is there is there a part of that too? It kind of feels like, you know. Whitetails, there's there's been so much focus on them for so long, and they're the most popular game species out there. And you know, I, I would assume they've been studied as far as like game species. They've probably been studied more than anything is in this country anyway. Is there is there a part of that where you're just like, man, there's just less to learn about whitetails or not? No, I think it just becomes more nuanced, and and um, you know, whitetail research has gone back longer than any other game species research probably. And so um, you keep getting better tools to ask more difficult and more informed questions. And to me, that's progress. And I, I agree with you. Whitetail deer are the game species of, of North America. They probably generate more excitement, generate more dollars for conservation than, than other species. And so I, uh, I'm glad to see that that research is, is still going strong and glad to see that people are interested in it. Yeah. So last question here, you mentioned way at the beginning of this, uh, when we were talking about, you know, your time in South Africa, your time in China, studying prairie chicken lex and finding those, like you, you, you mentioned multiple times habitat and land use and habitat and land use. Like as you, as you get further into your career and do more research on various wildlife species across the world, do you like, how often do you just come back to habitat and go, man, this is like, this is the linchpin that holds everything together for game populations. I know, I know it's like so dynamically variable, but that's like one constant that just seems to need love all the time. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it exactly is. I mean, you need the food, water, the cover. And so you don't have good habitat. Some some species can live anywhere. I mean, you look at coyotes, look at white-tailed deer. I mean, uh, um, some of these generalists can get by anywhere, but then you get more into the specialist species, and the habitat needs become very specific or very large or something that makes it a challenge to have that on the landscape. But without good habitat, you're going to have nothing. Yeah. And that's, you, you mentioned this great intangible with some game species, they just play well with man and some don't. Uh-huh. And, you know, when you, when you talked about that, uh, the buck that took the huge dispersal and, you know, he crossed I-35 and he crossed, I think it was the Grand River, like uh-huh. multiple so, well, times. 
And you, you think of all these things that you'd go, that's probably a pretty good natural berry. And a lot of times he paralleled it, it seemed like, especially the roads, but eventually <laughs> it was time to cross. And you, you just, I would think mule deer, other than maybe a migration or elk or s- some of these other critters that maybe don't play as well with man, you'd think, man, that would be like a really, really hard edge for them. They they might cross it, but probably not. And then you think about that whitetail and you look at his route and go, it didn't seem to really ma- phase him. Right. No, he definitely knew it was there. He responded to it, but it wasn't going to stop him. Yeah. Yeah. It's wild. It's wild. Anyway, John, uh, this was so much fun, man. I really appreciate you coming on. Where can people, if they want to geek out on this research, where can they go to find it? Well, the, uh, the scientific publication is open access. And so Google or search, however you want, 300 kilometer because it's in metric for the scientific title, 300 kilometer dispersal by a white-tailed deer. And you can get the article. And that's where I'd encourage people to go just to see what kind of work goes into preparing a peer-reviewed scientific publication. To find out more, I mean, this is, um, this is really getting extensive news coverage. And so um, folks won't have to look far to find this. Now, the the future research that is coming out, uh, keep an eye on the Missouri Department of Conservation webpage, and and we're going to have everything out and available for the public. And and they were the sponsoring agency, and so they're going to help get the word out uh, to folks interested in this sort of thing. Yeah, that's there's there's going to be more coming out of this. Let's let's touch on that quick, and then we will wrap this up. When you you mentioned this paper, mm-hmm. this this peer reviewed research paper that's out there, uh, people. They're very quick to make judgments on something like this. If you say, oh, this buck walked on, and you're laughing because you know this. Go read. If you're like, I don't believe this is BS. Somebody threw that collar in the back of a truck and it drove 185 miles. Go look at this paper. Look at the resources cited, the sources <laughs> cited. Go look at the extensive uh, level of evidence in this and then make your judgment call on <laughs> what happened here. <laughs> very, I would encourage that. Yes. Yes. You will, you'll have a harder time refuting these findings. If you actually go give that a read, it's kind of a long one and it's pretty dense, but it'll be worth it. Uh, John, thank you so much. I really appreciate this. It was my pleasure. I enjoyed visiting. That's it for this week, folks. I hope you enjoyed listening to John as much as I love talking to him. Such interesting conversation with dear researcher like that, who has, who has so much, real world information, and also comes from a hunting background. You got to love that. I have been your guest host, Tony Peterson. This is Wired to Hunt, which is brought to you by First Light. As always, thank you, thank you, thank you for listening and checking in. If you want more whitetail information, check out our YouTube stuff that we're putting out every week. We got how-to videos, all kinds of neat things there. Check out my Wired to Hunt Foundations podcast as well. And of course, go to TheMeatEater.com. You're going to find a whole bunch of articles by some of the top whitetail writers in the country. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. 
Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.